Well, good morning. Welcome to Sunrise. My name is Brett, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you have a Bible, would you please open it to the book of Genesis, chapter 50. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from these black chair pockets, or I think maybe the ends of the side aisles. If you don't own a Bible, you can just keep that one. Uh, We're turning to Genesis, chapter 50. That's page 38 of the black Bibles and 26 of the gold Bibles, if you have one of those. And I would love for you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. should be on the screen behind me as well. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks. Thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you that we're here and not somewhere else, that we're here with your people. We're here gathered around your word. We're here where you are speaking through your word. God, this is your living word, and we need what you have to say this morning. So thank you for bringing us here, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a heart to understand, Father, that you would, that you would work in our lives in this time. God, you reign, and I pray that you would reign in this time in our hearts by your spirit, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, each, each week of the last month or so, we've been looking at encounters in the book of Genesis between God, the God of the Bible, and members of one family, the family of Abraham. And, and in each of these encounters, we see how, how we see what it means to know God. We've been seeing what, as we see God encounter these people and then respond to him, what does it mean to know him? What does it mean to walk with him? But this week is a little different because one of the striking things about the life of Jacob, or of Joseph rather, is there is no encounter. 
His great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, his father Jacob, they all had times when they, they saw God. He came to them in a vision, or they heard his voice. And he talked to them, and he made himself known to them. And there's nothing like that in the story of Joseph. And yet, God's work in his life and through his life is unmistakable. You see, God, God is brilliant in the ways that he deals with us as individuals. He knows what each person needs, and he knows what to bring into their life to make that happen. Right? So, so Abraham needed to be shaped into a man of enduring faith. And so the way God worked with Abraham was he made him these incredible promises, and then he made him wait a long time for those promises to be fulfilled. Jacob, who we looked at last week, Jacob needed to be shaped into a man of humility, and dependence on God. And so the way God encountered him was he met him in the night and he wrestled with him and and overpowered him and, and showed him his need. And what God wants to get done in Joseph's life, he forms not through a powerful experience of his presence, but through an, a seeming experience of his absence. Through, through God seeming to be nowhere to be found. Joseph suffers betrayal and injustice. He's taken as low as a person can go. And through that, he becomes the kind of person who can say what he says in verse 20 of what we read. As for you, speaking to his brothers who betrayed him, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He becomes a person who trusts and treasures what the Bible calls the sovereignty of God. That God is the ultimate sovereign. He's the ultimate king. That he, he rules over all things and is able to work all things, even evil and suffering, together to accomplish his good purposes. And now, this is something the Bible teaches all the way through. So one of the classic expressions of the sovereignty of God is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 4. So this is a confession of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar who learned this about God. He said, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God reigns over all. He rules over all. He does as he pleases, and no one can stop his purposes. And that's not just seen in kind of the big sweep of history that sooner or later God gets it where he wants it to go. His sovereignty is in the little stuff too. The book of Proverbs speaks about this. If you look at uh, Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. His, his rule governs even the roll of the dice, Right? He's sovereign over the course of our lives. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We end up where God wants us to be. And perhaps the most famous way the Bible describes this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If we could do some sort of like rapid mind reading assessment this morning and see what verses more people, the people, most people in this church know by heart that you could just recite off the top of your tongue. I bet Romans 8, 28 would be up right at the top of that list. This is what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So this God, he's so amazing in power and in wisdom and in goodness that he can take the 50 billion things happening in the universe at any point in time and he can make them all work together to produce the exact outcome in your life that he wants. But that idea, 
The idea of the sovereignty of God can feel a little abstract. And sometimes, to really understand something, we want a story. And no story better shows the reality of that and the reality of Romans 8.28 than the life of Joseph. So this morning we want to look at the story itself. We want to see how it points to God's sovereignty. And then we want to see what knowing that about God did in Joseph's life. What it, what it produced in him. What it enabled in his life. So first we want to see the story. So we were with Jacob last week. And you might remember Jacob had 12 sons with four different women. And I told you that was another story. And if you want to see that story, you've got to look back earlier in Genesis. I'm not going to get into it this morning. But what I want you to know, what's important from that, is that the only woman Jacob ever really wanted to marry was Rachel. And Rachel was the last of his wives to have a child. So she was unable to have children, and, and she'd been waiting for years and years and years. And finally, she had a son. And that son was Joseph. And so Joseph was the son of Rachel. He was the son of Jacob's old age. And so he was Jacob's favorite son. And his ten older brothers resented him for it, as you would, right? And they resented him because when he was about 17, he had a couple dreams in which he, he saw that his brothers would someday bow down before him. And they decided that is never going to happen. So one day... Jacob sent Joseph on a mission. He sent him to go find his brothers, see how they're doing with the flocks, and then to bring back a report for him. So, so he goes out, Joseph goes out looking for his brothers in Shechem where he thinks they're going to be, and they're not there. So he's kind of wandering around looking, and a man, we don't know his name, finds him and says, hey, I heard your brothers. They said they were going on to Dothan. So he goes on to Dothan, and, and in Dothan, the brothers see him coming from a long way off, and they think, now's our chance. Dad cannot see us. Dad can't stop what's going to happen. Let's take Joseph. Let's kill him. We'll tell Dad he was attacked by a beast, and that'll be the end of those dreams. But Reuben, the oldest, he didn't want to do that to Joseph. He, he wanted to rescue him, so he said, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. And he was thinking, later on, I'm going to circle back. I'll get him out of the pit. We're all going to be fine. But while Reuben's away, and Joseph's in the pit, and the brothers are having lunch, some traders come by, and Judah says... If we kill him, we get nothing. But if we sell him, there's a little jingle in this for us, right? And so they sell Joseph to these traders, take him away, and they think that is the end of him. Now all of that, and they convince their dad, they go back to that plan A, and they convince their dad he'd been killed by a wild animal. And Jacob grieves him, and that's done. Now all of that happens in Genesis chapter 37. And in the whole of Genesis 37, the name of God is not mentioned once. It's as though Moses wants us to ask, now, now where is God in all this? Well, he's working out his good purposes. Because you might remember, a few weeks back, we looked at the covenant God made with Abraham. And God had promised Abraham, he said, your descendants will go to a, a nation not their own. They will serve there 400 years, and I will bring them out with great possessions, and I'll bring them back to this land. And the people who were reading this book that Moses wrote would know, oh, he means Egypt. Now, and they're wondering, I wonder, I wonder how God's people got to Egypt, right? How, how did God maneuver everything to get them where they're supposed to be? Well, it just so happened that the traders that Joseph was sold to were going to Egypt, God is working even when you don't see him. Now, when, when things in our lives are going well, we tend to say, oh, God is good. 
It's all the time, right? God is good. But when things in our lives are bad, we say, where is God? Where is God in this? And if you belong to him, the answer to the question, where is God, is always, he's in heaven reigning, and he's with you right now, and he's working 50,000 things together for your ultimate good. That's where God is, even if you don't see him. So anyway, Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt, in the house of Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And Joseph, he serves faithfully, God's with him, and so eventually Potiphar puts Joseph over his whole house. He, he's a slave, but he has the run of the house. He can be wherever ever he wants to be, even when Potiphar's not there, which plays right into the hands of Mrs. Potiphar. Because Mrs. Potiphar has her eye on Joseph. And every day she says to Joseph, come lie with me. And she doesn't mean nap, right? So she, she's always trying to entice him. And, and he, every day, flees from it. He said, I'm not going to sin against God. He tries to get away. And one day, Mrs. Potiphar gets him by the garment. And he, so he has to flee so fast that he leaves, he leaves his garment with her, and she uses it to frame him to try to say he tried something with her. And so Joseph goes from slavery to prison. God is working even when things get worse before they get better. Now in prison, almost the same thing happens. God was with Joseph. He was faithful there. And so the, the keeper of the prison eventually set him over the prison. He became kind of the, he was the one in charge of the prisoners, which is is, was the exact position he needed to be in to notice one morning that two of the prisoners were a little out of sorts. There were in prison, there was the Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker, who had both run afoul of him. Now they were in prison, and the same night, both of them had dreams. And they didn't know how to interpret the dreams, but Joseph was kind of in charge of the prisoners. He's the one that saw that they were troubled. He said, well, tell me the dreams. And God gave him the interpretation of the dreams. He said, so Joseph said, oh, I know what the dreams mean. Cupbearer, you're about to go back to your job. It's going to be great. Baker, you're about to die. And I wish I had better news, but that is the way that the dreams are going to go. And, and, and that's what happened. And so Joseph thought, now my time has come. Now it's my opportunity, right? Now maybe I can get out of here because now I'm in with the cupbearer. So he said, the cupbearer, when you get to Pharaoh, remember me. Would you, would you please mention my name to him? But the cupbearer forgot for two years. And, and after two years, I mean, he might have forgotten forever, but after two years, Pharaoh had two dreams. And he didn't know what those dreams meant. And the cupbearer thought, there was a Hebrew slave in prison who can interpret dreams. We should call for that guy. So Pharaoh calls him out of prison, tells him the dreams, and, and God gives Joseph the interpretation of those. He says, what this means is you're going to have seven years of great harvests and then seven years of famine. And God has given you this dream so you'll get ready, so you'll prepare for the famine. You'll get Egypt ready for it. And so Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt to get the country ready. And, and now we're beginning to see how God's purposes are being worked out, Right? Now we can see how God's people could get down to Egypt as God promised because they could come there and Joseph could provide for them there. But they don't know where Joseph is, right? They just sold him off. Now how, how are they going to find him in Egypt? Oh, do you remember? There's a famine, right? So, so in the land of promise, there's a famine there. 
And so they're beginning to get hungry. Jacob sends his sons. He says, I've heard that there's food in Egypt. And there is food in Egypt because Egypt has a Joseph. So he says, let's go to Egypt. I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to get some food for us. So after all these years, the brothers come and they stand before Joseph. But they, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Actually, they're not standing, are they? They're bowing down before him. The exact thing he had dreamed would happen. And they said, that will never be. So they're gathered around him, bowing down. He doesn't reveal himself immediately, but eventually he tells them who he is. And you can imagine that didn't flood their hearts with joy. But in that moment, Joseph reveals what kind of person he has become since they last saw him. Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to turn back. You don't have to. Beginning in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph has learned to trust and treasure the sovereignty of God. He said, God sent me here. Look what God has done through your betrayal of me. He says, we're all going to survive the famine. He's put me in a place where I can take care of you, right? Go get dad. Bring everybody. Let's come here. And so God kept his promise. His people came to Egypt and God accomplished his, person, his purpose in Joseph. He made him a person of love and forgiveness and confidence in God. God's good purposes prevail over and through the sin and suffering his people experience. That's what Joseph's story shows us. God's good purposes prevail over and through the sin and suffering his people experience. It wasn't just that God accomplished his purposes despite Joseph's suffering, like he somehow maneuvered around it. It was through his suffering that God brought about his plan, right? If, if his brothers hadn't betrayed him, he wouldn't have made it to Egypt. If he hadn't been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he wouldn't have been in prison to hear the dream of the cupbearer. If he hadn't been forgotten in prison, he wouldn't have been accessible when Pharaoh really needed a dream interpreter. Consider all of what God used in accomplishing his purpose in Joseph's life. He used infertility, which made Joseph the younger brother. Envy, which led to betrayal. He used a chance encounter with a man in a field who heard that brothers had gone to Dothan. He used Judah's greed. He used passing traitors. He used Potiphar's wife's unfaithfulness. He used the cupbearer's forgetfulness. Three different pairs of dreams. A famine. All of these, God in his power and wisdom, used together to do exactly what he intended. Have you seen Kung Fu Panda? I know, how's that for a transition? My family and I watched Kung Fu Panda last Sunday. And in Kung Fu Panda, there's this Kung Fu master, Shifu. Okay? And Shifu has a mentor, and that mentor has a vision that Shifu's nemesis, this arch-villain, Tai Lung, is going to escape from prison. And Shifu is determined that Tai Lung will not get out of prison. So Shifu sends a messenger to the prison to say, double the guards, make sure he doesn't get out. And so the messenger goes to the prison, but while at the prison, the messenger, who's a goose, okay, these are all animals, was that clear? It's a goose, and the goose drops a feather in the prison, and Tai Lung 
gets that feather with his tail, and he picks his own lock, and he gets out of prison. Okay, so Shifu tried to prevent the vision, and by trying to prevent it, he began the process of accomplishing it. Okay? That's exactly what happened here, isn't it? Joseph's brothers, they were so determined that this dream of them bowing down to him would never happen that they sold him into slavery, which was the first part of this chain of events that led to them actually coming and doing exactly what they were afraid would happen. That wasn't luck. That was God. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And Romans 8.28 says that that's how God works for all of his people. Some of you are reeling from a betrayal or a job loss, an illness or a death in your family. The sovereignty of God doesn't mean that what you're experiencing is good. It's not. But God is using it for good even if you can't see him. Even if it gets worse before it gets better. Joseph couldn't see what God was doing in his life until decades later. He couldn't see it in the prison. I'm sure he couldn't see it on the road to Egypt. But he saw it later. We often have no idea what God is doing in our lives. And that's why he puts stories like this in scripture. So we can see it in Joseph's life and trust that God's like that for us too. Some of you think you're living a plan B life. There was a life you were supposed to have. A job you were supposed to get. A marriage you were supposed to keep. A path you were supposed to take and things didn't go the way they were supposed to. Your life was like a highway headed to paradise and at some point you got off on an on-ramp and got lost and you can't get back to where you think you're supposed to be. And you're mourning that your life is not going to be what you expected. Listen, the sovereignty of God means that for his people, there are no plan B lives. Even if you got where you are through your own sin, or someone else's sin, or awful suffering, he is still taking you where he wants you to be. That doesn't mean your choices don't matter. It doesn't mean sin isn't still bad. It means he will work all things together for your good, even if sin is part of it. Trust him and do what Joseph did. Do the good that's before you and wait for God to bring you through. God's good purposes prevail over and through the sin and suffering his people experience. Now, this, I need to say, is not a promise for everyone. This is a promise for God's people. For those who have turned from their life without God and embraced him by faith as their father and their savior and their king. Is that you? Don't you want to be inside this kind of care? God's good purposes prevail. That's what his story shows us. And, and what did it make possible in Joseph's life? First, it made possible freedom from vengeance. Now, in the passage read at the beginning, vengeance is what the brothers were afraid of, right? Look at back at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they concoct this plan, right? They send a message to Joseph that says basically... Before he died, dad said to be nice to us. And Joseph hears that message and he weeps. Why does he cry? He cries because it shows that they still don't trust him. That, that the relationship has not been mended. That they're still afraid something, he's going to do something to them, right? They wouldn't even come and say it to him themselves. They sent a message. And so 
Then they eventually come before him, but they just, they just grovel before him. They say, oh, Joseph, we're your servants. But what does Joseph say? Look at verse 19. He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Which is to say, am I your judge? Joseph's trust in God's sovereignty made him content for God to be the judge of all the wrong he'd been done. Only God can pass final judgment on a human life. Only God knows all that went into every decision to know when you did what you did because of ways you've been hurt in the past, when you did what you did because you were meaning well, but just it was an ill-conceived idea, when you did what you did just because you're selfish. Only God knows all that. We don't know. Only God is wise enough to know how to respond to each person's sin. Only God can execute justice without malice or prejudice. The ultimate seat of judgment belongs to God alone, and Joseph does not want to sit in it. He says, am I in the place of God? He entrusts judgment to God. Now, the reason it's hard for us to forgive when we've been wronged, when we've really been wronged, the reason it's hard for us to forgive is we think, if I let this person go, then justice will never be done. They're never going to suffer for what they've done to me. So I'm going to hold on to make sure that somebody punishes them, that they experience something because of what they've done. That's why we can't let it go. But Joseph knew justice is God's department, and that enabled him to instead treat his brothers with compassion and generosity. That enabled him to forgive. How are you ever going to have this freedom without God? If you don't believe in a sovereign God who will ultimately punish all evil and right all wrongs, how can you ever let go of the wrongs done to you? And maybe you can overlook the little stuff, right? Like getting cut off in traffic or being spoken to rudely on the phone. But how will you ever let go of the big stuff? The stuff that really matters, like being abandoned by a spouse or losing your job because of a false rumor started about you or being betrayed by a friend to whom you had confided everything. If you can't trust God to take care of justice, then even if you don't actually act on your desire for vengeance, even if you don't actually get even, you're going to be eaten up by hatred and resentment and bitterness. You'll be a slave to your sense that an injustice has gone unpunished. But when you know what Joseph knew, that God is sovereign, that he's able to perfectly accomplish his entire purpose, which means righting all wrongs, then you can take to him in prayer all your hurts, all your sense of injustice, all your disappointments and broken dreams. You can entrust them to him and just say, your will be done. You deal with it, God. The justice, judgment is your department. And then you can treat those who have wronged you with compassion and kindness and forgiveness. You can let God be in the place of God and you can be set free from vengeance. Now, what else did it enable? What else did it make possible? Freedom from worry. Now, look at verses 24 and 25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to dad. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph died not having seen all of God's promises fulfilled. God had promised that his people would possess the promised land, right? They would come out of Egypt, and, and that hadn't happened yet. They were still in Egypt. 
He knew that God had told Abraham that people would be slaves in Egypt, that they would stay there for 400 years, come out with great possessions, take the land that God had promised. And so Joseph made the brothers promise that when they came out, that their children's 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 children would bring his bones with them. He was so sure that it was going to happen. Because Joseph trusted a sovereign God, he could face the future without worry. Why do we worry? Why do we lie awake, spinning the wheels of our mind, just trying to think through every possible outcome of what's going on? Why, do we, why are we so tossed by bad news? Why do we worry? Well, worry is natural if you don't know a sovereign God. Because when, when we worry, we're actually recognizing something true about the world. What we're recognizing is that we have almost no power over the future. Right? There are a few little things we can control, maybe. But the big stuff... We can't control at all. There are a thousand things that could go wrong today that we have no power over at all. That's what's under worry, a recognition that we really care about the future and can do almost nothing to make it the way we want to be. And, it, and if you don't believe in a sovereign God, then you have to believe that nobody's in control of the future. And if nobody's in control of the future, then there's no reason why the worst can't happen. So you worry. Honestly, if I wasn't a Christian, I would be a wreck. But if you know that there is a God so supreme, he can use even evil and suffering for good. And if you know that that God loves you, then you can rest. You can trust that he knows more than you. You can trust that he knows better than you. You can trust that nothing can stop him. He's not going to get it wrong. And even if what you think is the worst actually does happen, you can know that God intends it for good. Now, that doesn't mean you don't act. It doesn't mean you don't pray. You absolutely pray, but you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid because your Father in heaven is working for your good. Nothing tests what you believe like facing death. And Joseph could face death in peace and confidence because he knew that God held the future. God's sovereignty had been the story of his whole life. He could say, the worst thing that ever happened to me was turned by God's love and power into the best thing that ever happened to me. My brothers sold me into slavery. And God used that to position me to save their lives, their kids' lives, my dad's life. A God who could do that, a God who would do that is a God I can trust. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him with my death. I can trust him with my children, that he's going to be for them what he's been for me, even if I'm dead and gone. I can live and die at peace. Trusting a sovereign God freed him from worry. But maybe you'd say, well, that's fine for Joseph. Everything worked out for him in the end. But I haven't seen in my life how God turns the worst into the best. My life isn't so neat and tidy. How can I trust God? Well, you may not have seen what Joseph saw in his own life, but if you're a Christian, you've seen with the eyes of faith something even more amazing because you know that centuries later, another son was born into the family of Jacob. He too was sent by his father on a mission. On his mission, he too was betrayed and sold. Joseph was sold by his brothers and treated as dead, but Jesus was sold by one of his disciples and he actually was given over to death. But like Joseph, he returned from the dead, he ascended a throne, and what did he do from there? Did he judge his enemies? He saved them. He offered them forgiveness 
and salvation, just like Joseph. And God did that not despite his suffering, but because of it. It was because he was rejected. It was because he was crucified that he could become the savior of his enemies. Jesus could just as easily have said what Joseph said to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good for the saving of many. The worst thing that happened in history was turned by God's love and power into the best thing that happened in history. God did that for you, to forgive you, to save you. And once you've seen that, you can say, a God who could do that, a God who would do that, is a God I can trust. I can trust him with my life and my death. I can trust him with my future and my past. I can trust him to right all wrongs in justice. I can trust him to be my shepherd every day. I can trust him to make me a person who forgives, a person who can endure suffering with patience and hope, a person who can face the future without fear. Do you know this God who reigns over all things in absolute power and who gave his life in absolute love. And if you know him, can you trust him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed at what you chose for us, that you chose to come and you chose to die and you chose to bring us into eternal life. We are amazed at your love. And Father, we are amazed at your power. We are amazed at the way that you, in infinite wisdom, infinite goodness, work everything together for good for those who love you. So we marvel at you, God. We marvel at your power and goodness, and we entrust ourselves entirely to you. We want to be your people We want to rest in your care. And so please come and help us to rejoice in your sovereignty. Help us to rest in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.